This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Deadly protests in reaction to the disputed election results in Venezuela as the opposition takes to the streets and the government cracks down. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We have electoral politics in mind this week. We'll have details and analysis of the controversial outcome in Venezuela. And we'll also look ahead to this weekend's presidential race in Paraguay. But first, Kurt Devine is here with the rest of this week's Latin American news from beyond Venezuela and Paraguay. The U.S. Senate began hearings this week on proposed reforms to the country's immigration laws. Charles Schumer, a Democratic senator from New York, is one of the leaders behind the bipartisan reform effort. Immigration reform is vital to securing our borders, jump-starting our economy, and ensuring fuller access to that great American dream. The multi-point reform calls for tighter border security and a path to citizenship that calls for undocumented migrants to wait as long as 13 years and make multiple penalty payments to the government. The daughter of an influential Cuban dissident says enough evidence exists to merit an international investigation into her father's death. Oswaldo Paya died in a car crash in Havana in 2012. His daughter, Rosa Marita, says some witness testimonies and text messages contradict the official government account of the crash. Paya's daughter spoke at the University of Miami about an alleged governmental conspiracy. It's become much more evident. It's as if they want us to know. The driver of Oswaldo Paya's car says a government vehicle caused them to crash. A judge in Guatemala suspended the genocide trial of former head of state Efrain Rios Montt. The judge made the announcement after Mont's defense lawyers called the trial illegal and marched out of the courtroom. Human rights lawyer Ali Beydoun defended the process of a fair trial at the Washington College of Law in Washington, D.C. this week. You know, I always think of this one quote by Alan Dershowitz, the famous defense attorney, where he was once asked, would you have defended Adolf Hitler? And Alan Dershowitz said, well, yeah, and I probably would have gotten him off, too. And the day after I got him off, I'd take out my gun and kill him myself. <laughs> and I think it's that thing where the first thing you have to think about is the system fair. Because if it's not fair, then what's the point? Today, Rios tomorrow might be you or me. The Guatemalan judge ruled all testimony in the case will have to be repeated, in effect, restarting the trial from the beginning. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. And now we turn to the disputed outcome of the Venezuelan elections. Venezuela's electoral authority certified Nicolas Maduro as the country's new president this week, and as we record this program, he's preparing for his official inauguration. Maduro will fill out the term of the late Hugo Chavez, who picked Maduro as his successor. Maduro has served as the country's vice president and foreign minister. He won a snap presidential election this past weekend, taking in 50% of the vote. However, challenger Enrique Capriles Radonsky the governor of Miranda State, fared much better than predictions and pre-election polls. He snared 49% of the vote, the closest election outcome in Venezuela in 40 years. Caprila said he would not accept the election outcome unless there was a recount. Although Maduro initially said he would agree to that, he changed his mind. Violent anti-government protests flared after the voting, leaving at least eight people dead and 61 injured. Opposition groups damaged government buildings and the Socialist Party offices. 
Caprila says his representatives have documented more than 3,200 cases of electoral fraud. And although the Venezuelan voting system is renowned for its accuracy, some critics of the government questioned the independence of Venezuela's electoral authority and how it coordinated with Maduro on election night. The United States called on Venezuela to recount the vote. After initial calls for a recount, European countries and the Organization of American States recognized Maduro's government. Every country in Latin America, except Panama and Paraguay, recognized and congratulated Maduro on his victory. Maduro also ordered the opposition to stop its post-election protests, calling such demonstrations a type of attempted coup. The opposition relented, with Capriles calling for calm. The Carter Center in Atlanta said the Venezuelan opposition has a right to expect its recount requests should not have been ignored. The center called on both sides to work on resolving their differences. One of the center's experts called the snap election a dirty campaign where voters and poll watchers alike faced government intimidation. The unsettled and dynamic nature of the post-election environment has us looking for answers. We have two short interviews this week. The first, via long distance, with Charles Shapiro, the former U.S. ambassador to Venezuela. Ambassador Shapiro now heads the Institute of the Americas in San Diego. It sure strikes me and that uh, Nicolas Maduro uh, has fumbled what looked like a sure victory and let it slip through his fingers. There were presidential elections six months ago, uh, Hugo Chavez versus Enrique Capriles. And in the intervening six months, while almost the same number of people voted, Maduro got 686,000 fewer votes than Chavez had. So what appeared to be an easy double-digit win for Maduro turned out to be a very close victory and one that is questioned. certainly by the opposition, by the OAS Secretary General, um, and by the United States. We see, after these elections, um, violence and protests, um, more people killed in the violence than people killed in the terrorist bombings in Boston this week, and the Maduro government is blaming the U.S. and blaming the opposition for this violence. Do you have a response? Well, first of all, I don't speak for the United States, but... uh, I mean, that's sort of the, the, the standard playbook of the government of Venezuela is to, to blame whatever problems they have on others. Um, they certainly blame the United States for all kinds of things, for directing the opposition, for, for the death of Chavez, for giving him cancer, for a whole bunch of things. Um, so far as I know, uh, the United States had nothing to do with with demonstrations, and in fact, the right to demonstrate is guaranteed in the Venezuelan Constitution. Um, that those demonstrations, I'm, I don't have enough information about how those deaths occurred. You know, who are they on what side and who did what? But uh, clearly, um, they're in a dicey situation right now, and, uh, and, and and it seems so needless. I mean, if they had simply called for international observers to monitor the election, uh, the winner of the election would not be questioned. And so the very thin margin and the opposition is claiming 3,200-some-odd irregularities um, do raise doubts about how did they really win? Are these the right results? Uh, And the opposition has called for a recount, a manual recount, um, as have uh, 
Well, Secretary Kerry did yesterday in his testimony before the Senate. The head of the Venezuelan Supreme Court also said yesterday that there was no chance that there was going to be a recount. Um, eventually, those calling for a recount, the Organization of American States, the U.S., um, will have to um, have some sort of uh, ameliorated position, will they not, about this? Um, it looks like the Venezuelans are um, about to inaugurate their next president for the next six years or so. Yeah, it, it sure seems that way. We know you're not part of the State Department any longer, but you're still very interested in Latin America and, and focused on this region. How would you advise those that you still know in the State Department? How would you advise Secretary Kerry in these instances? Our role has to be very careful. We don't want to become a protagonist. But at the same time, standing up for democratic principles is always a, a, a pretty good moral compass and a, and a pretty good route to follow. Most of the countries in Latin America have recognized the Maduro government as the legitimate government in Venezuela and are sending delegations uh, to the inauguration that, that is actually happening on the day that we are going to be recording this program. Mm -hmm. So how is there a disconnect then with with the U.S. policy and the U.S. view on this? Because there were some international observers who were there at these elections, nope. although we haven't heard too nope. much from them. They were not international observers. Uh, they were international, but they really weren't observers. They were from UNASUR, uh, the Association of South American Countries. They were invited by the Venezuelan National Electoral Council to accompany the elections. I mean, actually, it's a very important word, uh, to accompany, and that's their word, not mine, the elections. And what they did was go to the polling stations on election day and look at people in line and, and, and go in, and the voting is electric and almost, uh, electronic in almost all polling stations of Venezuela. Um, that's not electoral observation. Electoral observation is something that actually is very technical, takes weeks to do uh, the European Union is terrific at uh, electoral observation. The OAS is very good at it. The Carter Center does it as well. Uh, there are other organizations that do electoral real electoral observation, and that means going in ahead of time. So, I mean, it's much more complicated than what, what you're talking about is being a poll watcher. This week, the Maduro government has characterized these violent protests as, as a type of coup. Having concerns about a close election and, and, and calling for a recount and protesting uh, uh, when there is no recount doesn't strike me as a coup by any definition. I mean, that's very standard practice in Venezuela. It was when I was ambassador, it has been ever since then, to accuse the opposition of being... Uh, oligarchs and only representing the wealthy, which clearly is not true if they got 49% of the vote. They're, I, I, I can guarantee you that 49% of Venezuelans are not wealthy. Let me mention that, that you were the ambassador in Caracas during the temporary three-day coup where Hugo Chavez was temporarily removed. Mm -hmm. On this program, in the past several weeks, we've heard several people mention that the U.S. was supportive of that coup. I, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that characterization. Well, I, I, was, I was ambassador at the time. Um, we did not organize, mastermind, or in any way direct what happened in those days. Um, just, just simply not true. Um, if we're guilty of anything, it's, it's of not condemning it. Uh, when it took place, but um, it was a very fluid situation and, and things were moving very quickly. Well, thank you. Ambassador Charles Shapiro, former U.S. Ambassador to Venezuela and currently the president of the Institute of the Americas in San Diego, joining us today on Latin Pulse. It's a pleasure.
pleasure, thanks. We also turn to Dr. Christopher Sabatini, the Senior Director of the Americas Society, Council of the Americas. Sabatini is also the editor of the Americas Quarterly. We spoke to him via long distance from his office in New York City. You know, I think it demonstrates uh, perhaps the, the uh, quicker-than-expected evaporation of uh, the warm glow of Chavez's um, charisma over his air. Um, I think it also shows fundamentally the, the pragmatism of the Venezuelan voters, which uh, many people had known. I mean, for Chavez, there was the charismatic factor, but he also represented sort of the very legitimate sense of economic frustration and anger um, that had preceded his uh, 14 years in power. And so, you know, I think we're seeing a much more um, issue-based voter, because there are a lot of issues that Venezuela confronts now, economic and, and um, social as well, rising levels of violence that make Caracas one of the murder capitals of the world. We're going to really see Maduro tested as a leader, tested in two ways. First, in um, his level of pragmatism. Um, you know, in most electoral or most democracies, this would be seen as a, as a mandate for a leader to have to reach out across the aisle and uh, govern in a more consensus-oriented fashion to recognize the uh, legitimacy and popularity of, of the other side. Um, that may happen. I, I'm not discounting that. Um, and that would certainly take real leadership, given the 14 years of uh, vitriol that has um, really been primarily driven by the Chavez government, but obviously the opposition has, has uh, its fair share of, of uh, let's say, anti-democratic rhetoric and, and sentiment. Um, the, uh, and then on the other side, we're going to see what he's, how he's going to be able to manage his own party. Uh, many people saw this as basically Maduro's election was a done deal. Uh, this is going to really cast in doubt his ability to carry on the Chavez mantle. And so now all those divisions that people say exist, uh, the fractions within, the, uh, within Chavismo, are going to be competing for this now. And uh, so it's going to be really Maduro's, you know, because he's going to face some very difficult uh, decisions and policies on the economic front, probably rolling back a number of uh, a lot of public sector spending, that feel, people feeling the bite of the currency devaluations that have occurred over the last year in the last couple months, rather. Um, and within that is how is he going to deal within his own party, uh, given that he was really just, uh, you know, sort of named by Chavez and then barely squeaked through an election. So I think that's going to be um, the real deciding factor, because as we've seen over the last 14 years, this is a deeply polarized society, it's polarized not just by the rhetoric that I mentioned before, but also by the uh, almost systematic disarticulation of institutions that can mediate these conflicts whether it's judiciary, whether it's um, local governments, whether it's even the police. Let me go back to economics. Uh, there's some fear that there will be further nationalizations under a Maduro government. In some ways, he campaigned against Polar, the largest food distributor, as much as he campaigned against Capriles during this particular um, short, quick, snap election. Um, what are your feelings about those Potentials. Well, again, he faces two two choices. One is again to reach out across the aisle, try to heal the wounds, and try to pursue a much less aggressive, polarizing policy than Hugo Chavez. The other is sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, hewing to the uh, party's uh, more radical elements and uh, catering to them, and that would be the more the policy of, of nationalization. If I were a betting man, and I'm not Rick, but if I were a betting man, I would say um, the tendency is going to go more in that direction. Um, now, he is, of course, going to confront a number of economic realities. As I mentioned, uh, some of them will be um, inflation, which is running at 30%. Uh, we're looking at a um, fiscal deficit that approaches 20% of GDP. 
Um, clearly, uh, the government's got to scale back some of its spending and nationalizing industry is not the best way to do that. But by the same token, um, as the country experiences a number of shortages, uh, in, particularly in food areas and also in electricity, blackouts have become a common phenomenon now in, in um, Caracas. The, um, as that happens, you know, the temp- temptation will be to go for that easy, quick solution to pick an enemy and to nationalize uh, food and beverage companies and the like, and to blame it on, uh, on you know, uh, rapacious capitalists or the bourgeoisie, uh, whatever sort of rhetorical device they want to have. The question that I hear is how is a country on top of the world's largest oil reserves in this particular economic state? <laughs> um, well, I, you know, and that, I think there's a longer history that goes beyond Hugo Chavez. I mean, the first is... is is the, the curse of, of oil itself. Uh, one of uh, Venezuelan politicians once referred to oil as the devil's excrement. And indeed, it's been a curse. Um, you know, it, with all the problems of Dutch disease, you know, overvalued currency that came with it, the, and with that, the sort of the, the uh, contraction of other forms of economic activity uh, within Venezuela, um, the corruption the um, excessive sort of state-centric focus of development. Uh, this predates Chavez, um, and with it sort of the, you know, sort of the, the, the country being a victim or hostage to even the, the vicissitudes of the um, uh, global markets when it comes to oil. I mean, now about 90% of the, of the country's exports are based on oil. So it's, it is a very, very tenuous and difficult situation. And add to that the, the, the nationalizations that uh, former President Chavez uh, conducted that led to a series of bottlenecks and shortages in areas as, such as foodstuffs um, coming not only from production within Venezuela, but the ability of the country to import uh, foodstuffs because of uh, nationalization of a port that now can only really handle one ship at a time. It is a, uh, it is a very, um, I would say it's an economic basket case. Thank you. Dr. Christopher Sabatini of the America Society, Council of the Americas, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Rick. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This weekend, voters will go to the polls in Paraguay to pick a new president. The top candidates in the polls are Efrain Alegre of the current ruling party, the authentic radical liberal party, which despite its name is a moderate party, and Horacio Cartes of the Colorado Party, the longtime frontrunner. We spoke with Dr. Peter Lambert about the upcoming elections. Lambert is the co-editor of the new book, The Paraguay Reader. He joined us via Skype from the United Kingdom, where he's an associate dean at the University of Bath. I think that the indications are that the Colorado Party um, will um, uh, come back into power. It has a very well-established, it's a very well-oiled and quite formidable electoral machine based on clientelism and patronage. And I think after um, five years out of power, we will see the return of the Colorado Party. I'm wondering, the, the Liberal Party, Efrain Alegre is their candidate, and the polls have recently seen um, him splitting the difference between what they were just a month ago. Is there any potential that uh, Alegre can win this election? Yes, it's, it's a very dangerous game that I'm playing by predicting electoral results. I think it's... Um, 
Of course it is possible um, that he could win. You're absolutely right that polls have varied. But the, the six polls that the six most recent polls that I've looked at have put Cardes and the Colorado Party at about thirty-five to about forty-two percent, with Efraín Alegre between about twenty-five and thirty-five. And I think once the elections actually take place, that we will see a Colorado Party victory. And I, I, I feel that Horacio Cardes, with the United Colorado Party behind him, which is absolutely key, will um, will come out um, quite a clear victor. We've certainly seen. Um Federico Franco, the, the current president, out in the U.S. recently and elsewhere um, trying to promote Paraguay, trying to promote the party. Um, is his help any help to Alegre at this point? No, I don't think it is. I mean, it's better than his opposition is probably the most positive thing we can say. As you know, Fernando Lugo was beset or had, had the problem of a uh, deputy or a vice president who was also his nemesis in a sense. Um, and undermined the Lugo government. Um, and, that think, w- and that would be Franco. Yes, and that would be Franco, exactly. Um, and I think the, the most important thing is that Franco hasn't come out against Alegre and Felizola, um, but I don't think his support um, is, particularly, is, 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 is particularly notable. What is important, given the unity of the Colorado Party, and they have never lost an election when they've been unified, the unity of the opposition is absolutely key. Now, the opposition is not united, but at least the Liberal Party is united. And so some people would question now the quality of Paraguay's democracy with this particular election coming so soon after Lugo deposed from power. I think you're absolutely right to identify the issue of quality of democracy. Um, Most of the indicators... Uh, place the quality of democracy as exceptionally n- low in the mid 2000s, um, and this was uh, this opened the door to um, uh, populism and authoritarianism. But actually, what happened is we had the victory of Lugo. Now, the issue of quality of democracy is important because he was the only candidate who, until now, has actually used that phrase and spoken about the need to address the quality of democracy through poverty alleviation, through reducing inequalities through land reform, judicial reform, tax reform, the, po- the program he put together in 2008. What I suppose is, is, is worrying, and, and goes back to your question, is that the defeat of Lugo and his impeachment shows how difficult it is to actually address and confront the problem of the low quality of democracy in Paraguay without um, creating the, 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 a, a backlash um, from political elites. You've done a great job of summarizing the program that Lugo put forward. Are we seeing any type of program put forward by Cartes? You've hit the nail on the head. One of the characteristics of the transition in Paraguay has been the lack of ideological debate and the lack of real political debate between the parties. One thing to, I suppose, to, to point out to observers is that the, the party system in Paraguay, to a great extent, is fueled not by ideological um, division, um, this is all the way since the parties were founded in the 1880s, but in fact an almost tribal um, form of politics um, in which the goal is the acquisition of access to power and state resources, not necessarily the national interest or any ideology. What we've seen in this election is a return to quite a similar programs between the candidates in terms of the, the, the programs are marked by generalities 
um, and a lack of difference in rhetoric. When we talk about Paraguay, it's notable that Paraguay ranks second to Venezuela and I guess Haiti tied as the worst countries in the hemisphere for corruption. Um, you mentioned the idea that parties really want access to state resources. Doesn't that seem to be adding to the corruption cycle in Paraguay rather than fighting it? Absolutely. This is um, exactly what part of the, the, the problem um, is that parties traditionally, the Colorado party has gained power and used the, the, the incoming government has used its access to, um, to state resources to boost clientelism um, and patronage. What I suppose is most depressing is that the likelihood of a victory of Horacio Cartes, whose own career is very much based on patronage and clientelism, um, is that uh, tr uh, uh, corruption is likely to increase in Paraguay rather than decrease. Obviously, one of the, the worries about Cartes is that there are concerns over um, possible links and accusations of money laundering, contraband, narcotic smuggling, tax evasion, etc. I think, uh, in that sense, Cartes is very much a step backwards in, in the battle against all of these, in the battle to, for greater transparency. Thank you, Dr. Peter Lambert of the University of Bath in the UK, joining us today on Latin Pulse and the co-editor of the new Paraguay Reader. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rick. It was a pleasure chatting to you. And now... Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. When President Obama meets with President Peña Nieto in Mexico early next month, the visit will have mostly positive overtones. Both Mexico and the United States are working toward long-deferred reforms that should open an array of fresh opportunities to upgrade their relationship. Washington is on the verge of legislating a sensible and humane change of its immigration laws. In Mexico, Peña Nieto's government has embarked on a far-reaching program of reform, which could transform Mexico into a much stronger U.S. economic partner. The second stop on Obama's trip, Costa Rica, will present the U.S. president with a more sobering panorama. Obama will be bringing good news about immigration reform to a region that has sent a huge number of migrants to the United States. But drug-related crime and violence will dominate the discussion because these issues dominate daily life in much of the region. Even Costa Rica, with its solid record of democratic governance and social and economic progress, feels threatened by the region's criminal organizations. A strong U.S. commitment is essential here. No other country has the historical, demographic, and economic ties to Central America that the U.S. does, and no other government is likely to come decisively to the region's aid. But President Obama needs to pay close attention to Central American leaders many of whom have sharply different views from the United States on issues of security and drug policy. The U.S. has invested some $500 million in security aid over the past five years, but this has clearly not been enough. There is, moreover, a need for Washington to fashion a broader long-term policy that gets beyond security 
and deals with a broader set of issues. It should, for example, be possible to take better advantage of the free trade arrangements between the United States and every country of Central America. Mexico and Central America present a test for the United States. If Washington is unable to respond to the opportunities in Mexico and the needs of Central America, it is hard to imagine the U.S. having any serious policy or strategy for the rest of Latin America. Both Mexico and Central America want to build closer ties to the United States. It will be far harder elsewhere in Latin America, where many countries are increasingly ambivalent about their relations with the United States. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to respond to his Latin American Perspectives commentary or any part of this program, you may contact us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes and Facebook. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.